Well, it's clear that the American cultural Christianity, the nominal Christianity that America has known for so long, is on its last leg. Just look at the cultural onslaught launched against Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, the couple behind the hit TV show uh, Fixer Upper on HDTV. Uh, I don't have cable, so but when I go to my mother-in-law's house, I usually am watching it there, and I find the show entertaining. And this couple, you know, they go around and they renovate and decorate homes, uh, helping couples and families in need. And these evangelical Christians who attend an evangelical church in Waco, Texas, are now being criticized for holding the his, to historical Christian beliefs about marriage. And in fact, criticized in the American pop culture for holding traditional marriage beliefs that, you know, 4 billion people in the world hold to, including Muslims, Jews, other types of Christians, and so on. Uh, but they are being made out to be the canker on the face of America. And despite being a healthy and intact family, I mean, that's pretty rare today, despite being a solid couple by all appearances, despite being loving parents who seem to love their children, and despite being Christians who we assume love their God, despite being philanthropists, those who contribute to society through creating jobs and helping people Uh, express their creative art despite these people who seem to love their neighbors you know who really knows what hgtv will do in response to these evangelicals chip and joanna Gaines, because of their biblical beliefs about marriage their church's biblical beliefs about marriage and this is a big deal to have buzzfeed i'm sure if you've ever surfed youtube you know these buzzfeed videos buzzfeed uh or even cosmopolitan You know, if you have these popular culture outlets criticizing them, you know, they could eventually lose their jobs because of their beliefs. Even though they themselves on their shows haven't said anything about sexuality or what God has said in his word. They could be blacklisted by the entertainment industry and see all that they have worked for stripped from them. So it is pretty clear from this example that... American cultural Christianity is on its last leg. Now, if you're visiting with us and you don't believe in Jesus, I certainly do not mean to lump you into the category of those who speak against Christians and Christianity. Okay, so I'm not I'm not seeking to do that at all. Uh, I'm sure we all have here. If you're a Christian, I'm sure we all have friends and family uh, who genuinely sincerely desire to know what christians actually think even though they're choosing not to believe it they desire to search the scriptures to see what the bible has to teach even though they've decidedly not embraced it but uh there are those who do mock and who do persecute christians and it has in fact been a steady thing ever since the birth of the church that's just simple reality. I mean, today you can look at the reports of what North Korea is doing to Christians, what China has been doing to Christians, <clears throat> what ISIS is doing to Christians. This is just a simple reality since the birth of the church. So I don't want to create any sort of hostility. Once again, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, I don't want to uh, harbor or cultivate any ill will in Christians against non-Christians. You know, that's certainly not what Jesus calls us to do. I just simply want to address what the scripture we look at today is addressing. And our scripture passage today addresses suffering Christians. It addresses persecuted Christians. Our passage today deals with how the church ought to respond, is to respond in the face of suffering. Now, over the next few weeks here in December, we're going to see how the church is to act in front of the world that brings about persecution and suffering upon Christians. We're going to look at that, right? How the Christian should respond towards non-Christians who persecute them. But today our passage concerns how the church is to respond within its own body when they go through persecution. So we're looking at the life within the church here as as, uh, the church experiences persecution. We look at what we're supposed to be about, what we're supposed to persist in, in doing so if you have your bibles please turn with me to the book of first peter uh chapter one and we're going to look at first peter chapter one verses 22 and we're going through chapter two verse 10 it can be found on page 1014 if you're using one of those black bibles there in front of you 
the main point if you're taking notes, you know, from our passage, Peter reminds us as Christians, though you suffer, persist. He says persist in loving God's people. Point number one, persist in loving God's people. Point number two, persist in longing for growth in the gospel. And then point number three, why is this possible? It's because you are a people founded on the living Savior. I'm going to walk through that, so if you didn't catch it, it's okay. Um, But he says, persist in loving God's people, longing for growth in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because you are a people grounded on a living Savior. I'll give you some brief background as we jump into the sermon here. Uh, The letter of 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his apostles, that he had chosen to build the foundation of the church. So the foundation rests on the apostles and their teachings. And he's writing to these Christians. If you look there in chapter 1, he says there, uh, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. And then he goes through various areas of what's now modern-day Turkey. Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, So these are folks who were Christians who were scattered in modern-day Turkey. And the church had fallen on hard times. This, this, the whole entire area, or all these different areas, uh, they were under Roman rule. And the emperor, that is Emperor Nero, he was no friend of Christians. Many Christians were eventually put to death under his reign by state-sponsored persecution, which really ramped up in the mid-60s A.D. So, so right now Peter is writing in the early 60s A.D., But yet, even though the persecution isn't sort of full-blown, it is still very much widespread throughout the empire. Uh, And we see this so clearly in 1 Peter. So we know the Christians are, look there in 1.6, grieved by various trials. Chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, We know that some were being beaten for the faith. You can look there at uh, 2.20 to 21. And then we know that some are being slandered, some are being mocked, some are being shamed because of their good deeds, right? Because they're not joining with others in sexual immorality, because they're not joining with others in their drunkenness, and then all sorts of other things. And that's found in chapter 4, verse 4. And this letter to suffering Christians really helps us as hearers today, you know, a couple thousand years later, prepare for suffering if it should come our way. And we know Jesus very clearly says, look, if, if the world hated me, the world will certainly hate you. Now, by his grace, he might not have allowed us or many of you so far to fall into this type of suffering. But, you know, if it comes, it should not be a surprise to us at all because Jesus says we actually ought to expect it. But while it is not here, we actually ought to praise God because he, by his grace, keeps that from us. But this letter helps us because in reading about how they should respond, about what they should be about in the midst of suffering, we learn how we should respond if that should come. We learn about what we should be about and what comforts them should comfort us. What enables them to go on living their daily life should enable us to go on living our daily life should suffering come. So Christians, you know, you guys may not have been seriously persecuted. I don't think I have. But I'm guessing you know what it's like to pursue godliness in front of, let's say, your non-Christian friends. Let's imagine, you know, when you used to walk and live in ungodliness in front of your friends, then all of a sudden you change, you become a Christian. All right, things can be hard. I've told the story about how a couple in Dubai that uh, were me and my wife's friends, you know, they were living together. They were not Christians. In fact, they had gone from a Muslim state in Central Asia to Dubai in order to sort of live the liberal lifestyle. And so they were living together. They were not Christians. You know, obviously they're, uh, they're um, having sexual intimacy. Uh, but all of a sudden, the girl has a desire to please God and follow Jesus. And she comes to learn that while sex can be a wonderful thing, according to God's word, uh, God says that it is to be experienced only in the bond of marriage. Keep in mind, she is not a Christian here. She's just learning. She's falling under conviction. She's learning about what her creator desires ever. And then she realized these things like, oh my goodness, I'm actually living in sin with my boyfriend. She's not a Christian. She's just learning here. And you know what she does? That night, she goes home and she puts a body pillow between her and her boyfriend. I mean, how odd is that, right? They've been living together for years. And then all of a sudden, here's this body pillow that shows up in between. It's like a barrier. 
And now she has to explain to her longtime boyfriend that, oh, actually, you know what we have been doing for years? Uh, let's just not do that because according to the word of God, as I'm still exploring it, I, uh, God says it's a sin. I mean, the boyfriend thought that she was nuts. And so he had for her his, his share of mockery. All of a sudden she becomes a Christian and now she's chast. Uh, or take the guy who used to get drunk with his homies. Some of you, this might be your situation. Do, doing all sorts of immoral things into the late hours of the night, right? This guy, or maybe this is your situation, he turns to Christ. He learns that Christ wants his people to be sober-minded at all times. Because if you're not sober-minded, if you're filled with alcohol, you can't be filled with a spirit. You can't think well about Jesus Christ and how to live your life well in front of other people. And then out of nowhere, he starts turning down his friends who are offering him beers. Second beer, third beer, fourth beer, drunkenness. And then maybe those very friends that he has had for so long begin turning on him. Maybe the very family he's he's lived with for so long starts ridiculing him. Oh, he's one of those born-again Christians. He doesn't drink anymore. He doesn't cuss anymore. He doesn't steal anymore. He doesn't hurt anybody anymore. And so therefore, he's not fun. And so they start rejecting him. They don't text as often. And then all of a sudden he's marginalized and then forgotten. This might be some of your guys' experiences. I mean, these experiences, whether they be in a family setting, whether they be in a friend setting or even in a work setting. Imagine if you take a stand for Jesus Christ and then your boss says, oh, this guy doesn't like doing what I do. So therefore, I'm not going to give him all the work that I could. I mean, some of you guys know you might get a little bit discouraged by these instances. And it therefore reminds us that this sinful world is not our home. And that while we are to live the fullest to the fullest in the world, we are to hope in the next world where Christ is. Well, I pray that in the midst of whatever mockery or persecution might come, whatever you might be facing right now, I pray that we are able to continue being about what Jesus wants us to be about. His church. What does Jesus Christ want us to be about whether we are experiencing times of serenity or whether we are experiencing times of suffering. Well, this is what we are to be about. Loving God's people, longing for God's gospel, given we are a church built on God's Son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at point number one. Though we may suffer, the passage reminds us, continue loving God's people, verses 1, 22 to 25. Go ahead and look there, I'll read that. Peter says... 122 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of god for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the lord remains forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you here, Peter calls Christians to continue loving one another. This is the main point in this section of verses right here. Though you suffer, he says, continue loving your brothers and sisters. Gospel love is what they're called to. Gospel love is a cherished commodity in God's church. The Bible makes a big deal about Christian love and its importance. In fact, love is to mark every single Christian. So much so that the Bible says that if you don't love the brothers, don't love your brothers and sisters in the church, it shows you probably aren't a Christian. It says that in 1 John. And then you see also the importance of Christian love in John 13. Jesus basically says, look, one way that the church is going to know, John 13, he says, the way that the church, that others are going to know that you are my disciples is if you love one another. That's how the watching world knows that you are Christians. In our passage, we see how important brotherly love is, is to Christianity. Look at verse 122, what we have, or, or uh, what have Christians been saved for? If you're trying to answer that question from the passage, what have Christians been saved for? Well, it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. You see Peter's reasoning in the verse there? Look, we're trying to study the Bible here as we go through the sermon. You see Peter's reasoning in the verse. Given this has happened, then go and do this. Given you have been saved and converted for a brotherly love, he says, then go on and love the brothers. Now, we typically think of conversion and salvation 
with the word and concepts of being born again. Born again. That's in verse 23. But here in 122, it's in the language of cleansing or purification and then also obedience. So for cleansing and purification, Peter's just continuing the theme that he brought up in chapter 1, verse 15, a theme of holiness. Underneath the big umbrella of, of holiness, that is God setting his people apart for his holy use and then making them holy. He just is talking about God setting his people apart as cleansing or purification. And then you have obedience to the truth right there. Elsewhere in scripture, conversion is described from the human point of view as obedience. So you could have said back in this day, you know, hey, have you obeyed the truth? Have you obeyed Jesus Christ? And that would be associated with becoming a Christian. So Romans chapter one, verse five says that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith bring about the obedience of faith. And how does he do that? Well, he does that by preaching the gospel around Rome, around all over the world. And this obedience marks the contrast between the Christians who obey the truth, uh, as we mentioned there in 122, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Uh, That is in contrast to those who reject the truth. Uh, because he's going to go down later on in the passage to speak about those who disobey God. Look there at the end of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word. Those are those who reject Christ, those who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. You know, some people think of of this verse and they think that salvation depends on our own work. So they read verse 22, we, we save ourselves by obedience. But to understand it that way would be to go against what Peter's talking about in about grace throughout the whole entire letter. Right. He's talking about God's grace that elected us. He talks about God's grace in causing them to be born again. He talks about God's grace in preserving them for the inheritance that is set aside. He talks about God's grace that is to arrive in Jesus Christ. So this is while Peter uses the language of cleansing, purification by obedience to the truth. He's not saying that you can save yourself through your own works in effect he's saying look i know you're experiencing suffering from those around you friends be all the more diligent to love one another since you are christians since you have been converted since you have been saved you've been saved to a brotherly love now you can imagine how fragile some of these christians might have been in the midst of persecution just think back to when you were trying to witness to one of your friends, one of your family members who rejected Jesus and did so in your face type of style. uh, Take some time to think about when you took a stand for Christ and you got discouraged by their reaction to you. And if they mock and if they slandered you, I'm guessing you know what it's like to fear man, right? That's one response. We could fear man. We could cower in fear. We could run away. We could avoid. We could never take a stand. That's one option. Another option, if you've experienced uh, persecution, is we respond and maybe in our sin want them to fear us. And so we respond in kind manner, in, in like manner. So we respond with some sort of vengeance in our sin. We respond with bitterness, with anger, with hostility, with slander. Friends, I know that some of you guys have been taking stands for Jesus. Wanting your, your own family members, wanting your own friends to come to know Jesus Christ, the salvation, the free forgiveness that can be found in Jesus Christ. And while you reach out to them in love, they withdraw their love from you. They reject you, right? That's hard. For me, I know what this is like. In fact, I've been going through this somewhat recently. And man, you know, speaking of brotherly love, even though I might experience this over here, some degree of mockery, some degree of ridicule, some degree of ostracization. I thank God for my brothers and sisters who love me. I thank God for those who come alongside me and care for me. So in some, in some of these moments, you know, you can think about who I have around me. There's Melanie, my wife, asking me how I'm doing. Asking me about how I'm processing being, feeling some sort of sting of rejection from my very, sometimes my very own family members. Asking me what's going on in my head, trying to help me. You know, so, so if you think about the two people that I spend the most amount of time with, uh, I, there's like Melanie and my family, and then there's Oscar. <laughs> because, you know, me and Oscar are over there in that building, basically, you know, all hours of the day. And I, so I thank God Melanie's there, and then Oscar is here. Uh, and, and Oscar continues to ask me about how my, those relationships are going, right? So 
If I remember correctly, we were doing this even, Oscar was asking me even this very last uh, week here. He's encouraging me along, pointing me to the Lord and God's goodness and God's wisdom and God's comfort. They help me know the comfort of Christ, even though I experience discomfort from others. So right here is Peter's telling the church to love one another. I thank God that uh, by God's grace, I know more of this Christ-like love as people come alongside of me and bear my burdens and sorrows. I mean, that's, that's biblical language right there, to bear our burdens and sorrows together. That's Galatians 6.2. And then our church covenant, which we affirm tonight, we, we reaffirm, you know, it calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I mean, that's really what Peter's encouraging this church, these Christians to do in the midst of suffering. You see how important it is as we might at various times suffer from the world. There is solace here in God's church. It's all the more important in the face of suffering or persecution from man to be loved by Christ and know the love of Christ in his people. Okay, so you guys might be wondering, right? This is your task. Love one another. You've been born again for this love, purified for this love. You might be wondering, well, okay, how exactly am I supposed to love those who are going through suffering or persecution, ridicule, etc.? Well, I think Peter actually offers a wonderful example in the passage. To suffering Christians who were possibly fearing man, Peter points them to the greater God. The greater God, he says, he says, love one another. And then look there in verse 23. Since you have been born again. Now, here's the contrast, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So there's the contrast. You have the perishable flesh versus the imperishable word of God. And then that contrast continues into verse 24. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever so you see there the perishable flesh and then you have the imperishable god the imperishable word of the lord that remains forever this eternality of god in his word the strength of god in his word the power of god in his word friends that should inform the way that we live the way we uh, interact with other people the way even that we suffer when we fear man i mean don't we bend the knee to the supposed glory of man If we don't take any stand, we bend the knee to the supposed glory of man. And in fact, in so doing, we actually bow the knee to this, uh, the glory of man, supposed glory of man. We ascribe glory to man. They are what is ultimately over us. But Peter here points them and us to the greater glory of God as revealed in the gospel. The greater glory of God as revealed in the gospel. That's what he's talking about when he refers to the word. Look at that in verse 23. The living and abiding word. That's the gospel. Verse 15. The word that remains forever. The word that was preached to you. Preached to you. I mean, here we see the centrality of the gospel for the Christian church. What is to animate daily living? It is not freedom from bad earthly circumstances. It is not political revolt. That's not what's central to Christians here. It is not, uh, Peter does not talk about overthrowing the government, but he does talk about holding fast to the Lord and his word. Again, if you're visiting with us and you are not a Christian, friends, I hope you realize that, you know, Peter's not calling us, even in the face of persecution, to respond with uh, violence. That's not what he's talking about. He's not calling us to uh, lead a political overthrow or political revolt. He calls us to Cling to the loving Savior and the message that brings salvation. Peter here points them and us to the greater glory of God as revealed in the gospel. This is, in fact, the the, the Lord Almighty's word of salvation here. I mean, just just imagine what it's like. I mean, some of you guys in your own suffering in being ridiculed for the faith, you might actually have the words of your loved one ringing through your ears, their mockery of you, their rejection of you. And here, what Peter's doing, he's guiding us all back to the word of God, to the promises of God, the affirmations of God, the salvation of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ here. Friends, if you're not, again, if you don't know this gospel, this gospel here that he's talking about that, that we ought to cling to, is a story about salvation. 
about how God created man to be in a relationship with him, perfect relationship, but man had turned their backs on him in sin. God the Father draws near to his creation. The creation basically says, you know, get lost. I don't really care about what you think. And that's what the Bible calls rebellion. It's man living in authority, uh, their own authority, being gods unto themselves. And this is what the Bible calls a sin. And we earn for ourselves, therefore, God's just condemnation. The Bible even says condemnation in hell. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God in his grace and his mercy sends Jesus Christ, his eternal son, to take on flesh, to live the righteous life that we should have, and then he dies the death that we should have. So where we earn for ourselves just condemnation, Jesus takes that wrath upon himself so that everyone who would ever believe in Jesus Christ can be saved from their sin, reconciled to a holy God, live life underneath their great and and loving creator, to live as they were designed to live to the praise of his glory, heralding this message of salvation. That's what he's calling the church to cling to here to trust in. Yeah, you might be experiencing persecutions from without, but from within God's people, the king who reigns over others. He says, cling to that message of God. This is the message that the church is to be about, regardless if we are living in times of peace or serenity or in times of suffering, because it's that that gives us true peace. It's why in here you read, he just, again, we're going to look at this in, in upcoming weeks. He just says, Continue living as regular Christians who suffer for the sake of God, just like Jesus who suffered, so we too are to suffer. Friends, if you don't know this message, if you don't know this peace, this forgiveness, and maybe the stuff of the world actually cripples you, friends, you can know this peace if you repent of your sins and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as the only true Savior, your very Creator. And you will learn to live life under him, experiencing forgiveness of sin and peace for yourself. To folks who might have been scared of the abuses of man, here is the announcement of the Lord. This quotation here that uh, Peter gives them in 1.24, it's, I'll just read that. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter here, he's drawing from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Now, you don't have to turn there, but he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 in our passage. And uh, and he basically actually let's go ahead and turn there. If you're sitting next to somebody who uh, doesn't know the Bible so well, please help them get there. That's just an act of kindness. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Basically, Isaiah is like right in the middle of the book, or in the middle of the Bible. And you see here why Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. God's people are in exile. And here God gives this word of comfort to God's suffering people. You look there, let's just skim over this. 40 chapter 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Right? God's bringing a word of comfort to his suffering people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her w- w- warfare is uh, ended. You look over there in verse four, it talks, talks, or verse 3, it talks about how God is doing something new amongst his people. In the wilderness, that's bad, right? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, right? That's, that's a good thing. Everything's going to be made straight so people can walk on the land. Uneven ground shall become level. You look there, verse 6. A voice says, cry, and what shall I cry? Now, here's our passage. All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. That's judgment. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's supposed to be a message of hope to suffering Christians. And you see there, look in verse 9, I mean, this is what Peter is meditating on as he's writing to suffering Christians. It really shows a lot about how these authors are using the Bible, the Old Testament. He says there, verse 9, Get up, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. That is the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Then he goes there at the end of that verse. He says, behold your God, your God who comforts, your God who delivers, even in the midst of your own suffering. 
This is the announcement here that's brought to these suffering Christians. Friends, if you fear man, if you in your evangelism, if you're fearing the repercussions of following Jesus in your workplace, perhaps you hear the words once again of rejection going through your ears. And if you're tempted to bend the knee, ascribing glory to man, remember that man's glory is not as great as you think it is in your moment of weakness. Man's word, no matter how much they haunt you, their, their, their name that you bow to is so short-lived. But the name of the Lord is the name known throughout all generations. The name of the Lord is the name that will be praised into eternity. And friends, you Christian, you bear the glory of that name as a Christian. You know, members who are having a hard time witnessing to their friends, to their family, let me encourage you to love them. Let me encourage you to be by their side, trying to understand them, trying to counsel them, remind them that while man may seem great in our eyes, there is greater glory in God and his gospel. Remind them of the things that Peter reminds us of. God's grace set aside for them. God's grace that has found them. God's grace that was preached to them. God's grace that was coming to them. God's grace in which they were to hope. I mean, this is part of what brotherly love looks like. The brotherly love for which we have been born again to. Now, we may be, or may we be a loving church all the more in times of difficulty. Right? So to the suffering church. Peter reminds them, continue being a loving church because we certainly need it in our weakness. And then point number two, even though we may suffer, we are to be a longing church. We are to be a longing church. That is, we are to long for growth in the gospel. We are to long for growth in the gospel. Again, we see the centrality of the gospel in the lives of his people. Look there, chapter two, verses one to three. He says there, so... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Again, if you know suffering, if you know any sort of persecution and mockery because of your faith, you know that the temptation is either to fear man or once again to make man fear you. It seems here that Peter has a slight emphasis On the second, that is, maybe those who might be tempted to respond in similar manner as the world gives us. We want to dish out the same type of junk, that same type of sin. But he calls us here to put it away. He says, don't give in to it. He says, put away all malice, that is, evil intentions towards other people. Put it away. Deceit, that is, tricking others to get your way. way, You know, he says, put it away. Of course, he's talking about hypocrisy uh, and envy. But then you have slander there, speaking poorly about others who who were slandering you, maybe. Even though you suffer at the hands of the world, he says, do not act like the world, but instead grow up into salvation. What he means there is mature, grow up into maturity of the faith. And he uses the word there, long for the pure spiritual milk as newborn babes. You know, friends, uh, if you're familiar with Scripture, you know that elsewhere in Scripture, authors use the, the language of milk, as something that young and immature Christians start off with, but then they move on to something more heartier, like meat. Uh, that's not the way that Peter's using it here. Peter's using long for the pure spiritual milk as newborn babies do because they are dependent upon it. They rely on it. Without it, they die. That's, that's what he's getting out here. The absolute necessity and dependence upon the word of God that is the gospel. It is what causes us to be born again, and it is what matures us. Now, once again, if you're suffering for the faith, you know, you, you probably have like a million things on your mind, don't you? If you suffer, you probably think like, oh, my goodness, OK, if I lose my job, how in the world am I going to care for my family? You're probably thinking of all the relationships that you that you love, right? These people that you love, that maybe they're rejecting you. Maybe they're somehow cutting you off. You're thinking about like, I love these people. I don't want them to confuse my actions of evangelism and sharing the gospel to them as hatred. I want them to know that I'm doing this because I genuinely believe that there's forgiveness of sins and a good and loving God, but they just think I'm out to get them. You think of so many different ways, so many different things. How are we going to pay the bills if we lose our jobs because of our stand for Christ? Worse yet, am I going to lose my life? And then all of a sudden we look at Peter's words and he's like, read the Bible more. 
Now you're telling me to make sure you read your Bible, right? There's so many other things that come to our minds that weigh so heavily on us. I mean, frankly, to some Christian ears right here, this encouragement sounds like a stinking chore. There's lots of people who think that Christianity is like this. That the Christian faith is a bunch of to-dos and ultimately the ultimate goal is religiosity or going through the motions. I mean, me and Oscar met a man who thought Christianity was like this, going through the motions. Now, are we to read the Word of God? Absolutely, yes, because it is God's Word. Uh, but we aren't to read it to, to be the ultimate end being to read it for, uh, just to read it, to go through the motions. Christians read the Word, we memorize it, we meditate on it, certainly because it is God's Word, but also because of the benefits that it brings to Christians by the power of the Spirit. Now, let me explain, explain by this example. Uh, um, some, many of you guys are looking for full-time jobs. Let's imagine that your employer hands you a stack of papers that details, explains all of your health benefits. When you are in need of medical attention, I mean, what kind of person is going to say, I don't have time to understand my policy. I don't have time to understand all these papers that detail uh, all of my medical benefits. Right? Logically, that's, that's, that's silly. Reading your policy will at least inform you of the benefits that you have. If it is a good plan, it will help you get what you want. It will help you use what you have. And then therefore you begin to live life with a certain degree of comfort, with a certain degree of security, with a way forward in difficulty. It just helps you live your daily life the more you know your policy. Friends, so it is with the Word of God. It roots our hearts in the benefits of living underneath the Lord as those who have already received His grace. Uh, The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has given us in this Word words of comfort, words of love, words of law, right? He teaches us how to live underneath His reign and through them we come to know God and, and enjoy this relationship. Our relationship itself becomes more secure. We know that He is for us, right? That's a benefit. And through this gospel, we begin to understand all of the benefits that we right now, if you're a Christian, possess in Jesus Christ as one who has been adopted into his family, one has been declared legally not guilty. Right? This is, we want to understand our policy, so we go to the word of God. But it isn't just policy. This is relationship between a living Lord. The Bible is God's personal word to us. It's not something that we read just in order to read. We read in order to know more of this personal and living God. If you look there in verse 3 of chapter 2, this is obvious. Actually, let's go ahead and uh, we'll just start at verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love that language. If you indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good because we immediately start thinking about all the stuff that's good, that tastes delicious. You know, in Psalm 119, verse 103, it says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You know, at home, Melanie bought this uh, this honey set, honey from different parts of the world. And we're eager to sort of dive into and taste all the differences. I mean, it's so it's so practical because you visualize how sweet are your words to my mouth my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth. I mean, what do you find good tasting? Some of you are thinking right now, tripa tacos. You're thinking of kimchi soup. You're thinking of dim sum. Some of you may even be thinking of meat and potatoes. Well, friends, just as we return to what is good, so Peter calls us in the midst of suffering to return to what is good, our good God and his word. Uh, you know, again, he's rooting these believers as they face as they face suffering in the goodness of God. I mean, this this uh, these these uh, verses come out of Psalm 34, the verse that uh, the chapter that Danny read for us earlier. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And, you know, friends, how his goodness is manifested. It's manifested in his deliverance. Listen to Psalm 34, verse eight again. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, right? That's Peter's situation, and it will be your situation if indeed you face suffering. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
So to these Christians, he's inviting them to review the table of God's goodness and faithfulness and his power wielded for his people. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says, return and eat. Mature in your faith. Those are, the, those are similar things. Return to his goodness. Mature in your faith. Friends, do you believe that the Lord is faithful to deliver his people? That he's good? Do you believe that he's faithful to deliver his people? I mean, this is a condition of pursuing growth in godliness in general, and more specifically, growing in godliness in the face of suffering. It's a condition of being able to taste, having tasted that the Lord is good or superior or worthy to be desired. Do you believe that the Lord's fountain of faithfulness is good? Or is it a little bit bitter? Because if it is a little bit bitter, I understand you right there. I can understand why we might be a little hesitant to return to drink from that fountain. If it is a little bitter, if it isn't always good, if it isn't always a little bit faithful, isn't always faithful. Friends, you know why many people judge God to not be good? It's because they assess his faithfulness on whether he has fulfilled their desires as opposed to him fulfilling his own purposes. Right? So, Lord, I want to get out of this suffering or I want a different job or I want out of the suffering and I want to go into this particular school. Uh, I want out of the suffering and I want my loved ones to live forever. Friends, all these things God could do. But regardless of what we may want, God's goodness is seen in his faithfulness to his own promises. It's seen as he fulfills his promises. We can't judge God's goodness based on our own desires. I mean, can you imagine that would just be so bizarre, absolutely bizarre. I mean, imagine you you have a friend who goes to work for an employer. He works for an awesome boss. And this is a good boss who says, look, okay, if you come in and I hire you, this is what I'm going to do for you. Not only am I going to give you a yearly salary every year at Christmas, I promise I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollar bonus. And then imagine, you know, we watch our friend, we're jealous of these things. uh, uh, And every year he's faithful to his word. And then maybe this Christmas we're going to go or maybe last Christmas we go to the party and say, hey, man, how's it? How's it going working for that boss? And then you hear him say, oh, this guy is a jerk. No bueno. I asked him for $1 million, but he only gave me 100 k I mean, isn't that bizarre to think of the employer's goodness based on what his employee asks for when he's already laid out this wonderful good promise and every single year until he dies, this employer's going to give him that $100,000 buzz. I mean, so it is with God's goodness. It is to be based on whether or not God fulfills his promises, not based on whether or not he fulfills what we desire. I mean, it's kind of a silly example, but I think it conveys what's going on here, or how bizarre at least it would be to judge God's goodness and his faithfulness based on what we ask for. Friends of Scripture, we see that God is good, and he's always faithful to his promises, and he's not going to let any suffering stop him from fulfilling them just think about all of his goodness that we see in scripture i mean when his created people sinned against him committed treason against him what does the king do well he moves to pardon them in relational language when sinners betray him when they commit adultery against him by exalting him exalting other things over him he doesn't write sinners off but instead he pursues them he even makes a covenant with those who committed adultery against him And then when sinners refuse to keep their end of the covenant, what does he do? He doesn't file for divorce saying, I need a new people. He reaffirms his promises to them. And of course he would because he's a God of the promises. He's a God who keeps his promises. So when he promises his Old Testament people, for example, that they would be a people, barrenness isn't going to stop him. Old age isn't going to stop him. Look at Sarah and Abraham in the book of Genesis. Violence against his people is not going to stop him. Think of Pharaoh wanting to kill all of the Hebrew male babies. God delivers them. And then we go to the New Testament. I mean, don't we see God so faithfully fulfilling all of his promises to his people in Jesus Christ, the Messiah? He promises a, a deliverer to come even way back in Genesis. And he fulfills his promise by sending Jesus. Again, threats of violence against God's chosen one. Herod wants to kill the babies. Not going to stop God because God fulfills his promises. 
Mary is a virgin, not a problem, even better. Then in the desert, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, Satan attacks him, trying to derail him from going to the cross, fulfilling God's purposes. Jesus remains unscathed as he is filled with the Spirit, leaning on the Spirit, and then his angels minister to Jesus. And then in his death and resurrection, as he died on the cross for the sins of all who would ever repent and believe, does God abandon Jesus to the grave? No, God raises Jesus from the grave, bringing him to new life, restoring Christ to the glory that he once had before he took on flesh. How about after the resurrection? Did not God promise that the pouring out of the Spirit would mark a new age, a renewal, that he would do something different, that he would reverse the effects of sin, where God would rule and reign and it would be made known among his people? This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 32, Isaiah 44, other passages. Friends, the church knows this renewal already. We have been born again. We possess the Spirit. We have different desires. We long for different things. We long for Jesus and His holiness. Uh, We long for those things more than the world. This is the reversal of the renewal that we know through the reign of Jesus Christ. We see, friends, the faithfulness of God here. We also have the forgiveness that He promises. Joy given in Jesus Christ. An unstealable hope in God solidified even in the face of suffering and persecution. Friends, we could go on and on and on to review the faithfulness of God and His goodness that you, Christian, have tasted. When we consider all that He has promised, all that He has fulfilled, the pardons that He doles out, the blessings that He lavishes, the hope that He secures, We should long to grow up into salvation, if indeed, because we have tasted that the Lord is good. Longing for the word and growing up into into greater mature spirituality is no mere religiosity. It's not reading the Bible for Bible's sake. In calling us to long for and grow into spiritual maturity, Paul calls us not only to live like Christ, but to call out to God who, and in order to see His goodness over and over again, to know it more deeply, like a child who faces sickness and suffering at nighttime, who confidently calls out in his sickness to his ever-faithful, ever-present, good Father. Knowing God's faithfulness, How could we hear this call to grow up into spiritual maturity and not want to long for growth in the gospel? Because He is good. Even if we are called to suffer, we are nevertheless called to continue loving the people of God and loving or longing for growth in God's gospel. And then we turn to our third point. What makes this possible in the face of suffering and being a sometimes ragtag, scattered bunch of people, Christians, It's that God is building his own people on Christ, the cornerstone. God is building his own people on Christ, the cornerstone. This is point number three. What makes loving and longing possible? Because God is building his own people on Christ, the cornerstone. Remember, friends, that God wants us to taste his goodness over and over again. To see his faithfulness in Jesus Christ and his gospel. Remember, this is personal. So what does Peter say there in verse four? As you, you suffering folks... You marginalized folks, you scattered and exiled people as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see the comparison that drives this section here in verses 4 and 5? I know the stone analogy is not so clear, but I think as we go on, it'll become clear. He says, as we come to Jesus 
a living stone. He says, you yourselves like living stones. That's a comparison. We have Jesus, then we have us. Jesus, who was he? He was rejected by men, hated by men, crucified by men. And as you Christians come to him, the living stone, look, in God's eyes, this chosen stone was chosen and precious chosen because God had selected him to build the church on. He was to be the cornerstone of the church, the savior, the foundation of the church. And then he's precious. He's loved. God doesn't abandon him to the grave, but he raises him because of he loved because he loves him. And we who believe in him are like him. He's writing to Christians who are rejected by men. The implication is that the Christian too, being in Jesus Christ, that they too are chosen and precious. And you see this theme of being chosen in first Peter one. You have there the elect exiles. You see the theme of being precious, right? We saw there that that God's that God sees his people and their faith as precious. And so what he plants, he carefully cultivates because he loves his people. So even though the Christians there and we even might be a scattered people, a persecuted people, a marginalized people, God is building us up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That is those who serve on behalf of God to offer. There's a, there's this purpose clause in order to offer so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's not talking about animal sacrifices. He's talking about whole, whole entire lives. That's what the Old Testament pointed to. The priesthood in the Old Testament pointed to the entire church of the New Testament. The temple of the Old Testament pointed to a spiritual house that is us, the church. The sacrifices, literal sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to the spiritual sacrifices of the church, offering up our whole bodies as sacrifices. And then you look there at verse 9 and we see who we are. You are a chosen race. He's not talking about a particular ethnicity. You know, the church was Jew and Gentile. He's saying you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. The whole church is a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I mean, what incredible comfort for Christians. And for various reasons. I mean, if you're suffering, if you're feeling some of this ridicule, find comfort here. I pray you would. First reason why we ought to be encouraged is because if God's intention was to build a spiritual house on his chosen and precious Christ... He will stop at nothing to complete it. I mean, does the all-powerful one who raised Jesus from the dead all of a sudden run out of power to guard and protect you, his people? That he is building to be his spiritual people? And with that same love that God the Father has for his son, this love from eternity past, I mean, the love that he has given his son from eternity past, does he somehow run out of that? No, that what she pledges to his son, he pledges to the people that he has given to his son. Eternal love, great comfort in the midst of suffering, preservation of the faith, comfort in the midst of difficulty. Friends, everything he wields for Jesus, he wields for you in your faith as you go from this land to the next, as you live your life as elect exiles scattered throughout the world, maybe even feeling oppressed by those who are outside. Just as God determined to set Christ as the cornerstone of the church. So, friends, he is faithful to build his church on the Lord. And he will stop at nothing to do this. As he says that the gates of hell will not stop him from building his church. Another reason why this should be encouraging to you as Christians. Though Christians are at times torn down by the world, friends, they are being built up by God himself. They're being built up by God himself. Even though we might at various times feel crushed. Yet even though we might feel crushed, we are being created by his spirit. Even though sometimes we might feel go through times of persecution. Yet God is possessing his people to be a holy people for a holy God. I mean, you look what God promises his goodness or, or uh, look there. Verse six. God promises goodness to his people there in verse six. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame right friends you might experience some degree of shame from your family shame from the world but you are being honored by the lord himself the honor it says is for those who believe friends you may be experiencing difficulty and suffering now but friends the lord is so keenly aware of your challenges and your sufferings just as he was his very own son's 
Though you suffer, you will receive honor. You have received honor of being included into God's holy people. When we deserved wrath, God included us into His holy people. You may one day suffer for the faith. You might be feel one day that you've been broken down by the world around you, but know that God is gathering His people as we speak. He's building His spiritual temple. He has charged us now to bring a message of hope and that same love that we know to a sinful world. I mean, this is what encourages us to stand at our post being ready to receive the Lord on any moment's notice, delighting to herald the name of the King and His good gospel even to His enemies. Right? Remember Peter here, he doesn't say go retaliate against the emperor. He will go on to say honor the emperor. Suffer for, being as a, for, for living as a Christian because we have a King who is good and He's given us mercy there in verse 10. Look there. God has shown us mercy where we had not known mercy. He gives it to us. So we as Christians ought to be ready to do this, ready to give mercy to our very own enemies, giving forgiveness to those who persecute us, praying for those who persecute us, as Jesus says, all the while trusting in him to right every single wrong, to vindicate his name and therefore vindicate his people's name. To conclude, I know it can be discouraging to face the possibility of losing relationships because of Jesus, being rejected because you walk in the ways of Christ. But friends, recall God's goodness. Recall your King's promises to you, His people. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 39. Another passage. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Our God is a good and faithful God and he can be trusted. Knowing this more deeply and then clinging to it more tightly is what enables us to fulfill God's good purposes for us, his church in this world. You see there in verse nine, you see this. The, the reason there, the purpose for why God gathers us to be His spiritual people, it is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we are to do that even when the world persecutes us. It's amazing. You see there that even though we might experience evil, maybe one day, certainly Christians throughout history have experienced evil from the world. Here we're supposed to know God's goodness and then testify to that goodness so that other people too would taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would anchor all of our hopes. You would anchor all of our actions in your goodness. Father, how awesome is it that we have tasted that you are good. Lord, we know this goodness in salvation. As you, the king who deserved, and you had every single right to judge us immediately. Yet, Lord, you waited. Not only did you wait, Lord, so that people would be brought into salvation, but you waited in order that you would save. That at your right time, you would send Jesus Christ to take the sins and the wrath that we deserved upon Himself so that we would taste Your goodness and know Your promises, so that You would rescue us from our sin and Your judgment and even the captivity of evil and sin. Lord, we know too that at the end of time, even right now, You are working to bring all things underneath Your Son's feet. And in due time, we will see, as we already know, we will see fully that Christ is supreme. Lord, we pray that we would testify to your goodness as you are gathering us even right now, that we might proclaim the excellencies of you who drew us out of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. Lord, make us a holy people who testifies to your good and powerful gospel. That, Lord, even those who are hostile as we ourselves were, can know salvation and a good God. Lord, we pray that 
as we are to live our lives in a holy way before the eyes of others, the world, Lord, we pray that we would so desire to love one another, to see each other secure in your goodness and in your, in your promises. Lord, we pray that we would desire for this spiritual maturity. And Lord, we pray that we would have great confidence knowing that just as you have laid Christ down as the cornerstone of the church, so, Lord, you are faithful to build us up in him. To the praise of your glory, we pray these things. Amen.